fall into the theology bit. Welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology out of Pittsburgh, and it's not like a bottomless pit. And as you know, when you die into a, when you, yeah, when you die into a bottomless pit, listen to me. It's, you know, Saturday morning here. It's I'm, I'm all messed up. When you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. But here at The Theology Pit, we're, I guess, we're more like a well, maybe, you know? And this well is not going to run dry. There's so much stuff in theology, and if you don't think so... I'll give you a little, I'll give you just a little hint of how the depths of theology works. Okay. Everything that I've said, this is episode number 10 in salvation. Everything that I've said, all these other podcasts that I've done on this topic, the other nine, and I guess we could include this one in here too. Number 10, there could be five or six podcasts on each one of different people actually rebutting every single thing that I've said. That's how much theology there is out there. It Theology is something, and, and when it comes to Christian understanding and it comes to the Christian life, um, they say that, you know, a, a child can find salvation in, in scripture, in theology. In just it's it, the basic understandings of the Christian faith, but a scholar, a scholar can drown in it. There's just so much. Um, I, I mean, I'm doing my best for you here to uh, make sure that I'm trying to be as comprehensive as possible and to make it, you know, coherent also. Because like, let's say you've never studied theology and you know you're listening to these podcasts and. You're doing it so that you can be educated. So I want to use terms and explain them, define them, um, talk in definitions, as my wife always reminds me to do, so that, you know, you can learn and kind of move on. But at the same time, I want to bring up these concepts and these words and these, these terms and, you know the different thing that I am at a very high level because there may be some people who have studied theology and they enjoy the approach that I'm taking. I mean, uh, there's, there's really nothing new under the sun. I've been studying theology for a while here. And, um, and, and if you haven't listened to the other podcast by a while, I mean, 16 years or more. And there are, you could really break them down into certain subjects and certain topics, that sort of thing. The topics you can break them down into really are, um, you know, you, you can discuss, for example, what's called prolegomena, what we think before we speak. Um, and, that, and that's a whole huge topic right there. It's dealing with epistemology or the study of how we come to know what truth is. Um, you could talk about uh, spiritual gifts. You can talk about um, the church, ecclesiology. You can talk about eschatology. Uh, the stu- that's the study of the end times. You can talk about salvation, which is what we're doing, soteriology. And you see how many different parts there are in, in all of that. Um, you could talk about the Bible. Um, you could talk about transmission of scripture, how we got today, what was written 2,000 years ago or longer. Um, translation of scripture, how it got into our language, um, the different types of, of scribes, the, um, 
different methods of interpretation. The but as you can see, this is all under under Bible, and there's all these subcategories. The constitution of man, um, humanity, anthropology, what we are. Uh, you know, how the world sees us, how we see ourselves, how God sees us, what exactly are we, that sort of thing. Sin, how has that affected us? That's homartiology. Um, Trinitarianism, um, theology proper, which is the study of God, Christology, uh, study of Christ, pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. Um, what are some of the, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. Um, you could study um, the different approaches to the meta narrative of what God has done and uh, looking at dispensationalism or covenantalism or those, we'll touch on a little bit of that. So as you can see, theology, it's so huge. It is like a well that you can constantly draw from. Um, and the reason why I think that we should study it is because we are all theologians. We are all having, we all have an opinion about God. And basically, that's what theology is. Theology is, you know, two words put together, theos and logos. Uh, theos meaning God, logos meaning um, a, a word, it literally means word, um, spoken word. I think we talked about logos before in other, um, in other pits here. But it's, it's a word about God. So if you ask somebody, you know, well, do you believe in God? Well, they're going to give a theological answer. Even atheists are theologians. They may say, uh, well, I don't believe in God. Well, that's a theology. It's a very definite statement about God that you don't believe in him. That is a theological approach. So it's not whether or not you actually are a theologian, but it's are you a good theologian? Are you a sloppy theologian? Um, or are you just a flat out bad theologian? I mean, you know, we can we can look at that. I mean, there are some really bad theologies out there and, you know, we can we can weigh those. Um, but. It's just a very interesting topic that I love talking about because there's so many facets of it and you can zoom in on one particular aspect of it and spend a great deal of time talking about it. And that's why whenever I'm preparing for these podcasts, I have a hard time in not only knowing where to start in each podcast, but what I want to tell you and what I want to bring out and how I want to make it coherent because... Um, there is so much. I mean, I have right now like two systematic theology books sitting in front of me. I have my Bible in front of me. I have a, um, a, a study workbook and I have a copy of the uh, Westminster Confession. Then I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pull from all this stuff for this particular podcast. And I'm not going to be able to go through everything on the topic that I'm going to talk about today, but there's so much in front of me. I have to say, okay, what's going to be beneficial to move things on? Since we're specifically staying with justification, I'm trying to limit it to all that. But um, if we weren't just talking about justification, if we were talking about any other topic, I would still be doing the same thing because theology is like a spider web that's kind of like weave, you know, together where when one part of it sounds, you know, you have like other uh, or not really sound like a spider webs don't really sound. Well, maybe to a spider it does. But when you vibrate one part of it, it's going to go it's going to ripple through the entire um, spider web. OK, and that's what theology is. But today. We're going to be talking about election and predestination. Now, we're coming off the heels 
of um, our, our talk that we did on the, the Catholic understanding of the satisfaction view of the atonement or the sacramental view of the atonement. Um, I want to kind of touch on it just a, a little bit so that we have analyzed it. I spent most of those two weeks explaining um, why they believed what they believed and the, and the background for it, because I think that's really important to know before you, you know, weigh something, you should really um, understand it completely. And that's, that's what I wanted to do. So hopefully from podcast eight and nine, you have a really good handle on why the Roman Catholic church believes what it believes when it comes to uh, communion and when it comes to, you know, eating the body and blood of Christ and necessity for that and, and everything. But before I move on and, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to necessarily criticize it, but as we, uh, you could see that as we move through, I don't want to use the word uh, criticism. I don't want to, I don't want to give it that negative connotation. I want to, uh, that's why I'm using the word incomplete. I'm showing that, you know, each, understanding of the application of the atonement is incomplete. And I don't want you to think that I have a completeness in my head and that I'm just kind of waiting. And you guys are listening to all these podcasts until I get to the very last podcast in the series where, I mean, I will talk about what I believe and why I believe it and how I think that, you know, it flows through all of history and everything that's that we've talked about and been said and why I agree to it and why I, I, I hold to it and that that is the perfect understanding because I'm going to tell you it's not. It probably will be incomplete. No, not probably. It most definitely will be incomplete and maybe you can see holes in it and you can say, well, you know, this could actually be improved by doing this. And a lot of times that's where these different traditions come from and different denominations and, and different beliefs on things. It's because they were just trying to improve on the last thing. But when we get to the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement, understand that they were trying to improve on the previous system. Same thing with the governmental view. They were trying to improve on the previous system. And I kind of wanted to get the Roman Catholic thing in there and the whole explanation for it because I felt like I was, you know, stringing you guys along a little bit without getting to the meat of the justification talks that we were going through and the, the different um, articulations of the atonement. And I didn't want it. I didn't want you to think that I was never going to get to some of it, you know, at all. But there's one other thing that I have to talk about. And I'm going to spend this podcast doing it. And that is on uh, predestination and election. Because the Roman Catholic view does hold to this. Um, it's I, I believe it to be very biblical. Um, Old Testament, New Testament, any time period, you would have people that would hold to some understanding of election and predestination. Now, what we're going to spend a lot of time talking about today is the subtle nuances when we say those words, election and predestination, and what what exactly do we mean by it, and what, what do other Christian beliefs mean by it whenever they say it. And this, I mean, this, this will get nuanced, but you'll, I think you'll understand why. But with the sacramental view and the satisfaction view, you're looking at a very corporate um, 
I don't want to use the word government, but let's say congregational aspect to salvation. And that seems to be the the theme that we've seen um, through history, uh, Old Testament and New, when we were talking about the Passover and that sort of thing. It's not that God was going in and he was saving people or passing over people during the Passover individually, but as a whole. Um, they were made up of individual parts, individual components, individual units, if you if you like. I mean, I hate to talk about people that way, but um, you know, in, in a crowd, there are a bunch of individuals that make up one crowd, and that becomes that one crowd. So it is very communal. It is very congregational. It is very um, family-oriented in a way. Um it is particular. It is an us them mentality. It is a group identity. Is is what's going on, and a lot of times Christians today don't have that understanding of of a group mentality. What they have an understanding is a me and Jesus mentality. I can I can do this on my own. Now, whether or not you think that you can do it on your own, it doesn't affect your salvation from from my point of view. It doesn't, from, from what I hold to. Others would say that it most certainly does. Um, they would say that scripture says that it most certainly does. Um, because are you elect, are you a child of God found within Christ, within the body of Christ? Or are you elect individually apart from the body of Christ and you just make up the body of Christ? Is it about you or is it about the people, the community? Maybe it's about both. This is why this understanding of election and understanding it is such a big deal because if you need to be a card-carrying member of a group, well, make sure you're part of the right group. But if it doesn't matter then you don't have to be a part of the group. People that say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, but I don't go to church. I'm not part of a body, but I'm still a Christian. Some people would say yes, some people would say no. question I always ask is, why don't you want to? I don't understand that. I mean, there seems to be a pretty strong, reasonable theme that Christians all through history have always wanted to congregate together. Um... You know, Paul talks about don't don't forsake fellowshipping. You know, um, getting with other believers. the The whole communion you can't do communion by yourself. Um, you can't do baptism by yourself. There's very little that is actual individualistic. Um, but there are some things that are individualistic. Prayer life. Um, you know, in in your own uh, personal sanctification. Those. Those sort of things where it is like a you and Jesus type thing. But if election is the big argument here, then we need to figure out how and why we're elected. Now, with the Roman Catholic Church, they are following the tradition of the people of Israel. Okay, God called out a nation. God called out a people. He said to you know, Abram, when he became Abraham, you know, I will make you into a, a great nation. Within um, Jacob, 
after wrestling with the angel, um, his name was, uh, his hip was put out of socket and his name was changed to Israel. And Israel had the, uh, had 12 sons and those were the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and there was this group identity, this, this family identity, um, Nations of people came out of for 400 years. Uh, na- uh, people came out of them and they grew. They grew large and they eventually were enslaved. And that's when the Passover happened in Egypt and, um, and they went out from Egypt. And now you have this, this group. And God had set them aside. God had elected them, uh, predestined them, you'd like to say. But there was a purpose for it. He, they were his chosen people, people that he chose, not chosen person, but chosen people um, as as a nation. And some people have said, well, that means that every Jew is saved. You know, if, if I'm a Jew, I'm saved because I am. this. Well, no, you were the people was chosen actually to bring the Messiah through um, the savior of the world was to come through that people. That was the uniqueness. That was the the preservation of them. And there were certain things that they had to learn and certain customs and certain understandings. So as we said before, with God, you know, uh, saying through through the angel in the burning bush um, to, to Moses, tell them that I am sent you and what that I am meant, the, you know, you, I am, as in you will know me by what I am going to do. You will know me by my works. You will know me by what I bring to pass. That that is his name. And that's how they they know God. And they always built altars and had feasts and remembrances and those sort of things because they're remembering what God did by know. And that's how they know God. That's how, that's what his name is. The one who acts, the one who will do these things, the one who is doing these things. But more specifically, the one who will do these things, which always makes it interesting uh, with Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, whenever he's going to be arrested and the soldiers come to him and, you know, they say, well, who are you looking for? I say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And the way that it's it's written is that he is referring to what's called the Tetragrammaton, the four letters, um, Yahweh, meaning you will know me by what I am going to do. And that's very interesting because that starts, um, ultimately that starts the passion, um, narrative and, you know, when he is, uh, crucified and then he is raised and, you know, he sends the Holy spirit and the Holy spirit indwells them. And so at that moment when Christ says, you know, who are you seeking? And he says, he doesn't say his name. He says, the name, the the title that God has taken for himself, which then Christ takes uh, for himself also, showing that he is God. And it's by what I'm going to do. And then look at what he does. He raises himself from the dead. He finishes the um, the liturgy, finishes the sacrifice, um, reconciles his people, makes them a people, makes them a nation. It's all very collective. It's all very corporate. And so when you come to this Roman Catholic understanding or just Catholic understanding for that matter, it's not considered Roman Catholic until the Reformation happens. Um, Then you have Christians that follow Rome 
and, you know, Christians that follow the reformers. So you could say reformed Catholic and Roman Catholic, but shortened, they would both be Catholic. And I think that'd be a little confusing. So it's not unreasonable for the Roman church to hold to this type of corporate election. Now, how were you elected as a Jew? Could you join Judaism? Could you join the nation if you were not Jewish? Absolutely. When you read through the Old Testament, there's all kinds of ways. Um, you could, you know, go and just say, I want to live amongst you and follow your traditions and worship your God and do this. And they were more than welcome to, to let you in. Um, if you didn't want to be a Jew, but you wanted to live among them and you were still respectful of their laws and their traditions and you just wanted to live under them, they, they did have a good you know, legal system. A lot of people say they were misogynistic and down on women and people that say that don't understand the other cultures of the time and they don't understand the Hebraic law. Um, they don't understand Leviticus. They don't understand when they say things like, uh, well, you know, if a, if a woman is raped and she's forced to marry the man and, you know, he has to take her, you know, she has to be his wife and all that stuff. And, blah, and it's like, well, no, that's, that's not what it says. It's, I, no, I should, I should say that a little bit differently. That's what the words say, but that's not the connotation of the meaning. The meaning is if you have raped someone in that culture, then, you know, that woman is no longer a virgin and therefore you are financially responsible for, to her for the rest of her life or the rest of your life. And that the father actually can stipulate what that price is. And it's not like she has to go live with him, but she is considered married. So imagine if we had those type of laws today, that if a rapist raped somebody, instead of going to jail, he then had to have his wages garnished wherever he went for the rest of his life to the tune of whatever the father of that woman said that they should be. That is not misogynistic. Um... You know, and there were different things. If a woman was raped out in, in a field, if she was you know, raped in, in a town and she didn't scream, then she was found, you know, to be willing. But if she did scream, she was unwilling. And there, I mean, there are all, all sorts of, uh, you know, different things that's, that's happening. Um, but a lot of times, I mean, if she was betrothed to somebody else, and betrothals can happen at a young age, but people aren't married until they're older. Um, that's a type of protection because the person raping that person, if she was betrothed to someone else, they can be put to death. I remember talking with somebody about this one time because they, you know, came at me from that angle saying that, you know, there's all these horrible things, the way they treat women and all this stuff. And they were going through the Levitical law and they were bringing up these verses and I was explaining it to them. And it got to the point where by the end of the conversation, they were defending the men and saying, or defending the rapists saying, you can't just kill people for this. You can't put them to death for this. And I'm like, Hey, their culture, they hold, you know, family and sexuality at a different standard than what we do. We can't be cultural bigots here and say that that's, you know, um, that that's wrong because they are more prudish of that time. Um, they said, no, this is extremely, um, 
How should I say? This is extremely important for our society. If we didn't have this, our society would break down. So it, there's just a lot of protection of women in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, you know, it advocates the education of women. You know, whenever Paul says that, you know, uh, a woman should be taught at home, uh, when he lifts up women for, you know, teaching their, their sons, teaching their children, uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, there, there are two books in the New Testament written to Timothy, and he, you know, talks about her, his mother and grandmother and how, you know, they taught him and they raised him. I mean, you're talking about educating women. You're, you're saying it's important for women to be educated. Women could be prophets, uh, prophetesses, um, they held those type of, of offices. Um, there were women that were, um, you know, uh, no, not, not, not economists, but all, like entrepreneurs, uh, they're rich women. They would bankroll some of the, the, the missions in the book of acts that, you know, Paul, Paul went on. This is very pro woman, especially when you look around at the other, the other cultures. So, if you were to want to live in that society, a I guess you could say more of an egalitarian society where there's there's equality in it, especially in like economic standpoints. I think it's um, Proverbs thirty one. I believe I'd have to look it back up, but it talks about you know a good woman how she can you know she takes care of the house and she goes out and she makes good business deals and she makes money and she does you know she she's a working working woman. She does she does both things. You know I mean and. And, and that's to be extolled. Yes, that's a good thing. You know, go and look, look for that. And I think that that's um, that, that uh, proverb is written by a woman and it's advice to her son on the type of woman that he should look for uh, to marry. So if you're coming from another culture at that time that is very misogynistic and treats women like garbage and you come into that society and you want to treat women like garbage and do that, there are penalties for it. You it could possibly be uh, put in a position where you would be put to death. Um, and I, and you can understand just in today, if you look at the news and the news cycle and what's going on, where you have people from very brutal misogynistic cultures going into cultures that actually value women and, um, and they're egalitarian, equal, and they don't understand that. They just look at them as, you know, just cattle things to be just, you know, treated horribly to be, you know, beaten and raped and ridiculed and put down and controlled and, and everything. And, and you see that today and you see that going on. It, it was the same thing back in the old Testament. You know, I mean, you had people like that and then you had the, the Hebrew society, which was very advanced, um, because of the books of the law, um, in, in the way that they, uh, they govern themselves. So this, this idea of this, this election, when you come into this society, you obey by these rules, and there are benefits to obeying those rules. Um, we are looking not just at the socioeconomic understanding, but the spiritual understanding here. If you're part of this society, God is then putting you in this classification, and he, you are being justified and sanctified, and you are sanctification means to you know to set aside to be to be set aside, and so that's what's happening. You are being set aside as as a people. You are a peculiar people. You are an interesting people. Um, the same type of wording 
that is used of Israel as a, a holy nation, um, priesthood of believers, that sort of thing that um, Peter calls us in, in his books in the New Testament. He's using the exact same wording from the Old Testament that's used about Israel. So it's not a far leap to say that the church is Israel. Now, when we get into um, ecclesiology, the study of the church, and eschatology, the study of the end times, we're going to look at uh, the covenantal understanding. Um, We're going to look at what's called replacement theology, and we're going to look at dispensationalism also. And what you have with those uh, two different understandings is you have... um, a covenantal theology is that God has made covenants with his people and has continued on, that there is a remnant, that there is an election, but just because you're part of the election, that doesn't mean that you're saved. That means that you are part of a group where some people are going to be saved. It's called the remnant. Um, Paul brings that out in his writings. Not all of Israel is true Israel. Um, You have replacement theology where they say that the believers of the Old Testament, that the church has now replaced Israel. There, There is no Israel anymore because the church has completely 100% replaced. Where covenant theology, they may say, well, you know, there may still be the remnant within Israel or you know, Israel as an, as an entity and as a people. God still has a, a soft spot in his heart for them, so to speak. And, you know, he's going to bring uh, good things to to pass for them. He is eventually going to save them. Uh, replacement theology would say that, no, there is no Israel anymore. The church is Israel. And then dispensational theology would say that there are different time periods in which God has worked in different ways. Um, and I think they split them up into seven. But when we get to dispensational theology and we get to the understanding of the relationship between the church and Israel, we'll get into that a lot more. Um, But all that to say that when it comes to election, there seems to be a strong narrative, a strong meta-narrative for election within Scripture, whether you're talking about Israel or you're talking about the church. And especially with our understanding that we got from the the Eucharist, the, the Seder meal, the Passover meal, the Last Supper of what the four cups were and that, you know, this fourth cup that Christ has drunk, the third cup was of redemption and the fourth cup was of making a nation of people, of of a family communal type thing that you still have this theme running through it. God has not changed on this. He seems to have transformed it to actually make it bigger, actually make it broader that the Messiah has come through the Paschal lamb has been slain of, of Christ and that that then opened the door to all the other nations, that spiritually, through Christ, we can all come and be part of this, this, this election, of this people, of this group. Your background doesn't matter. Your heritage doesn't matter. Your ethnicity doesn't matter. It didn't really in the Old Testament, but eventually it started turning into unless you were a Jew. And the way that they traced whether or not you were a Jew was actually through your mother's line. Um, so you would ask people today, are you Jewish? And if they have a Jewish mother and a Gentile father, they would say yes. But if they had a Jewish father and a Gentile mother, they may say no, I'm, I'm not. 
So the lineage is, is traced that way. Um, you can see that in, I think it's in Matthew's gospel, the lineage is uh, followed back through the, the mother. And uh, I think in, in Luke, it's the father because the father was like the legal line and the mother was the, um, uh, I almost want to say heretical line, but the, um, the heir line, you know, the, the, uh, the words escaping me, you know what I mean? But, but looking through it, uh, that way and how, you know, in both of those lines, they both go back to David and, um, and then even, even beyond Luke even takes it uh, back further to, to Adam because of who he's, um, writing to writing to a Gentile audience. They could care less honestly about David. It doesn't mean that much to them, but Adam means a lot more. So whenever you come into or are actually brought into this uh, society, you can come in on your own, but when you're born into it, you are then brought into it. Um, within the election and the, the covenant of the Old Testament, you had circumcision, where with the New Testament, you have baptism, which is replacing uh, circumcision. Circumcision could only be done on men, of course, um, where baptism can be done on everyone. And the waters of baptism and, and, you know, as we saw from the sacramental system, washing away original sin, that sort of thing. But election is a very big narrative. And I don't know of any tradition that denies a concept of election. Now, there may be subtle nuances in what they mean by election. And that's what I want to get into now. Um, I, I think that we grasp the understanding of the concept of what election means as a whole. And I hope that we understand that it's not unreasonable, it's not illogical at all. But before, you know what, before I even get to getting into these um, different understandings of, of election and everything, let's talk about what it means to be in, whenever you wanted to be a Jew, and let's say you join their society and now you want to join their religion, you know, three things you had to do as a man. You had to be circumcised, which really isn't a big selling feature for your religion, to be honest, and, and to be part of your group. Um, the second thing you would have to do is you'd have to make a sacrifice um, on the altar, sacrifice for sins. And then the third thing that you would have to do is be baptized. Whenever you come into the church, particularly the Roman Catholic Church, there is a teaching aspect, a catechism. It's always been like that. Um, sometimes it'd be a couple years, and then they would ask, do you actually believe this? And if you do, then you, if, if baptism is needed, you are baptized. Um, you are given communion. Um, it's what catechism is, you know, in, in the teaching aspect, you, you're taught. Sometimes catechism, you know, usually catechism uh, precedes um, the confirmation and, the, you know, the partaking of the uh, communion, all that stuff. Um, but there are also things to do that. And then you are part of this group. You are part of this elect. And this is the group that God has elected for salvation. This is the election of predestination. But like I said, I want to get into the, um, the subtle nuances of what does that election actually mean? And that's what I'm going to do right after this.
everyone. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. When it comes to the Christian aspect of election, you have to ask the question, of course, like all of this that we've been asking, where does the action take place? Election and predestination. Were you predetermined to be saved? Were you predetermined by God to actually come into this group? Was this group predetermined to be saved and will everybody be saved? When we look at election, there are two different kinds. There is conditional election and unconditional election. What I've been describing would seem to be conditional election, which means that you are elect based on what you have done. You are elect based on whether or not you did what was prescribed by the tradition, by the church or, you know, with our Old Testament example uh, by the, the nation of Israel. And that if it's conditional, this is where we start getting that sticky point. And, and one of the reasons why I talked about um, free will and um, do we actually have it? Is it actually possible? I talked about, you know, prevenient grace. I talked about... Um, uh, I don't think I, no, I didn't talk about predestination. What the, what did I talk about? See, I can't even remember. You're thinking I can't remember either, but you know, I I, I talked about um, free will. You know, a lot with with Pelagius, and how he said that we are free will, original sin. That was it, uh, free will and original sin, and how sin affected us. And it would seem that when you have this understanding of a conditional election you necessarily default to a semi-Pelagius understanding that God gives a type of pervenient grace. Now, from the systematic theologies that I have, and I don't have any Catholic systematic theologies, um, I just have Protestant ones, but the ones that I have take two different sides to this, a conditional and an unconditional. And we're going to go through the conditional one first, because it seems to... Uh, segue very nicely from what we've been discussing. And when it comes to election and what's called foreknowledge, that God knew, God knows everything. So he knows in the future what's going to happen. Um, there's a, a theology called open theism that argues and advocates that God doesn't know the future. He's just sort of like the ultimate uh, ultimate chess player that he can just make all the best moves or like the understanding of the force with a Jedi, you know, from star Wars, whenever they're uh, fighting that they know all the possible scenarios that are going to occur. And they know the um, probability of each of those. And they're able to see the greatest probability. And that's why they're able to fight and counter uh, so well. And the force can flow through them and, and that sort of thing. Um, but a lot of people reject open theism. Um, it's, I don't know many people that hold to it, that God doesn't know. 
And when we get into theology proper and we get into the attributes of God, necessary and unnecessary, the concept of Godness, um, that will become more clear. But I just kind of wanted to mention it here just just because um, to, to, to let you know that there actually is that view out there that God doesn't know. But this is under the understanding that God actually does know. He knows all things. Um, there's some. There's a thing called middle knowledge also that God even knows everything that potentially would happen. Um but he definitely knows what is going to happen, what to him, if he's outside of time and space, what has happened. So he can look into the future and he can see all who are going to be saved. Everyone that comes to Christ, he knows who they are. And because he knows this, he can then elect them by his, his foreknowledge that he has. And the definition that's given for this is, um, I'm, I'm taking this from a book called Lectures in Systematic Theology. This one, I'm using, I'm using two. I'm using um, uh, Wayne Grudem's uh, Systematic Theology um, for the uh, unconditional election side. And for the conditional election side, I'm using a book called Introductions in, Introductory Lectures in Systematic Theology by uh, Henry Clarence Thiessen. And this book was published in 1949. It's it's an older book, but it's, I mean, yellowed pages and everything, but it's very uh, good for this particular point of view. And it, the definition of election is this. By election, we mean that's that sovereign act of God in grace, whereby he chose in Christ Jesus for salvation all those whom he foreknew would accept him. I, I know I went through that fast. Let me break that down for you. Um, what that basically means is that God elected Jesus Christ. Okay, Jesus Christ is the elect. Anybody that comes to him is then found in him, and therefore by proxy they are elect, which means everybody has the freedom to accept or reject Christ, to believe in him. And this is what they mean by election. Okay. Now, this election is in its redemptive aspect. Okay, the scriptures also speak of election to outward privileges, to sonship, and to a particular office. Um, but we, here, we are here concerned with the election as related to salvation, so we analyze the above definition more fully. And this is how they go into it with election and foreknowledge, that Election is the sovereign act of God. He was under no obligation to elect anyone since all had lost their standing before God. So what he is saying is that nobody is able to come to God. Nobody is able to choose Christ. Okay, Even after Christ died, God was not obligated to apply that salvation, except he owed it to Christ to keep the agreement with him as to man's salvation. And this is why we can say that, um, that we are saved by God's grace for Christ's sake. That's what it means, for Christ's sake through faith. That if it wasn't for Jesus and the Father's obligation to the Son to honor what the Son had done, then none of us would be saved. And faith is passive. Faith is just the, the vessel here. And I don't want to read all of this to you because it'll, man, we won't get to like anything. I'm looking at the clock here and it's already been about um, you know, 43 minutes on here. So I, I know I've only got another 
you know, what, 20 minutes to, to go here before I'm wrapping stuff up. And, you know, I, I got a couple to get through. So I'm just going to start summing this up a, a lot more. Basically, what's going on is that in order for man to be saved, to be justified, God had to provide a way, which he did through the sacrifice of Christ. And then Christ becomes the means to which men can be saved. But the problem that we have is because of original sin, that man does not have the ability to even choose God to to come to him. So God had to give everybody through a common grace, the ability to accept or reject Christ evenly because he's a just God and that is just and fair. And so therefore we have the doctrine of pervenient grace. Now, not everybody holds to this. Um, some would say that when it comes to, um, the understanding of original sin, that we are not dead, spiritually dead in our sins to the point that we can't do anything, but that we are just sick. We need a doctor. Christ is a great physician. And through the elect, through the church, the church can then come through and the church can help people, uh, spiritually and, and spiritually, because of the placement that they have with God, that God is using them as a vessel in order to uh, save people. Okay, um, think of it as like, you know, the the church is like a a pitcher, and God is filling it with water, and the water is what hydrates. It's not the pitcher. The pitcher is just the vessel that is uh, dispensing uh, this this grace. In that sense, and this is why you need the sacraments, and this is why um, baptism is important, confession is important, penance is important, the Lord's Supper is important, um, you know, marriage, holy unction, um, all all that stuff. That's why that's always you know seen as extremely important. And again, this gets into a little bit of of, of Pelagius. I mean, but Pelagius would say that we need God's grace every single day you know, for everything that we do and that we can't act outside of God's grace ever. But that's different than what we're talking about because he would say that, you know, that God gives us, you know, power and then through our own free will um, and through our own response, we can live a perfectly sinless life. And that by God giving us this power that he gives to everybody equally, um, that our will and our response is what we control, and theoretically somebody can um, live a perfectly sinless life that is not outside the realm of possibility. Now, when it comes to this understanding of unconditional election, not necessarily what they're saying. Um, they aren't saying that, you know, God's grace is, you know, something that we need every day. And that's what God's grace is, even though they would say that. And I'm not saying I'm, I'm not saying that they nobody says that. I'm not saying uh, what I'm saying is that that's not all of what they say, that common grace, this provenient grace that God gives freely to everybody, then gives people the ability to accept or reject him. And so they can either become elect conditionally or they can reject. Everybody has their own free will for it. And they would say that the proof in this is when we go to, um, we look at uh, Romans 8, uh, 29. Um, and let me read this from my net Bible. I'll go back to 28 because that's where the sentence starts. It says, and we know that 
all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, because those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those who he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Okay, so as you can see, it says very, very clearly in verse 29 that he foreknew, and those whom he foreknew he also predestined. So what they're saying is that God looked into the future and saw that because of what he did, because of the merits of Christ, because of the work of Christ, this common grace can be given to everybody, this provenient grace, and that there will be people who will come to Christ. And therefore, the way that this mechanism is put in place, then he says, yes, those one, that one over there, I see that they're going to accept Christ. In Christ, he is my elect. Okay. And they, this is kind of the, um, the big thrust of this, of this argument of this conditional election and this, you know, this foreknowledge, this, uh, this predestination. Okay. Um, when it comes to this understanding of uh, predestination also, um, the word foreordination is also used. Now, this um, older uh, systematic theology here talks about the authorized version and how the authorized version translates stuff. Authorized version is the uh, King James version of the Bible. It's called the authorized version. And they say that it correctly... Um, uh, you know, it has the well, it has the the term foreordained in there, but the American Standard Version correctly changes this um, to foreknown, um, and it should be foreknown. Also, I mean, I, I agree with that. That that foreknown is is a better that God foreknew, um, and it, they would say that you know, Romans eight um, twenty three through thirty shows this. And also, 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, where he's writing, to the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So it seems that we have this understanding that God uh, looks ahead. But it also says in here, in this um, systematic theology on page uh, 347, we hold that common grace is extended to all and that everyone has the ability restored to him uh, will do his will. Okay. So this is the justice of God being upheld because God is just. And that's conditional election. Now, if you remember from earlier podcasts, way, way, way back in the beginning, and we talked about this of meriting God's favor, meriting salvation, um, it's very hard to not say that this is merit, that that's what's going on, that by you doing these things, God is then obligated to act in this certain way, that God saves you by transforming you, by changing you, in this case, changing your heart, changing your mind, in order to balance the scales, you know, to make it even to use the, the Pelagius understanding that he gives you the power to then choose uh, good or evil, to choose right or wrong, to choose him, to choose to be saved or to choose not to. And then you, by your action, can then merit God's favor. And there are people that totally disagree with that. They would say, now you've probably picked up that I'm one of them, but I want you to understand that this is not unreasonable. 
to think this way. Um, it's it seems to be all of what the Old Testament taught, all of what we see in the church um, up to this point. Uh, of the Reformation, and what we see even post-Reformation. The view is particularly an Arminian view. You have a Calvinist view and an Arminian view. When the Reformation happened, uh, Martin Luther um, was part of he the German Reformation, and his understanding of justification is one that I've articulated many times, um, that it's forensic, that God declares it, and there's nothing that we can do. Um, Calvinism, John Calvin then grabbed onto that and, uh, Jacob Arminius later on came along and wanted to improve on it. And this is where he introduced prevenient grace. Now the concept or the wording of prevenient grace, you're not going to find in the Bible anywhere, but I think that it's disingenuous to say that, that concept's not there because it seems to be there within the old Testament. I have a harder time finding it in the new Testament though. And I think that it's because the fulfillment of what's going on is greater than what was. Just my opinion on it. But it's not unreasonable for somebody to hold to prevenient grace. Because honestly, I mean, what's the alternative? That you that it's unconditional, that you have no say in it. And if you have no say in it, then therefore um, God not only chooses some to be elect based on nothing, that they do, good or bad, but then he chooses others to go to hell based on nothing that they've done, good or bad. And I think I've touched on that before um, with the understanding of um, original sin and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, that doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair at all. But when we look at the flip side of it, when we look at this... Um, Unconditional election and, and, you know, the conditional election and the um, prevenient grace view, this Arminian view, would be seen um, within um, the Anabaptist churches, um, the Mennonites, the Amish, the Baptists, um, some uh, evangelicals, um, the Evangelical Free Church of America, you may see uh, some of that. Um, you may see, uh, well, definitely the Roman Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox um, the, the Wesleyans, um, the holiness movement, uh, Pentecostalism, you're going to, you're going to see this. It's, it, to be honest, it is the majority view of the church throughout all of history and even presently today. This of conditional election is the majority view. But as we've seen, well, maybe we haven't seen on these podcasts, but if you read your Old Testament, as you see, those who are elect are not all of Israel. Uh, Paul points that out um, somewhere in Romans. I should have looked it up. just popped into my head. But not all of Israel is Israel. Um, there were some, there was a remnant that was saved. Those who came out of Egypt that were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, um, they didn't believe. Generations were swallowed up by earthquakes and those sort of things. And, you know, so why weren't all of them saved if they were all elect? And... You know, if you're saying that everyone has equal opportunity, well, how is it that everyone isn't born into a Christian home? How come everyone doesn't have the same uh, opportunity to believe? Why is it that, you know, you're finding somebody at fault because they didn't believe but they were raised maybe in a Muslim home 
or maybe they were raised in a Hindu home. Maybe they were raised in India and they've never heard of Christ. They never heard the gospel. And you're saying that they had just as much of a chance of accepting Christ as, as you did. That's not fair. That doesn't solve the fairness understanding. Um, the, the way they look at some of these objections is to say that we are not to question God in this sense. And I don't want that to sound too harsh. I don't want it to sound like a shutdown because they would say the same thing about us. Why doesn't God choose everyone if it's unconditional? And we would say, well, it's just in the mind of God. Don't know. Um, and so it's, it, it, it's almost like a, a cop-out argue, argument. But... Um, but they, I think that that's a very difficult um, problem that they would uh, that they would have, and um, they would say that you know if predestination is not unconditional and absolute, then God's whole plan is uncertain and liable to miscarriage. But this could not be, uh, but this could only be true if God had not foreseen the outcome and not adopted it at His plan. So what they're saying is that God knows that there are people that aren't going to be able to believe because they haven't been told and we need to go tell them. It's very important that we need to go tell them for that reason. The gospel seems to be very organic in that sense. And there are scriptural arguments to be made for that also. But um, where I'm going with this is that God looked into the future, saw the number, knows who is going to be elected and bam, they are the elect ones. They are the ones who are going to come so it's not like, oh, geez, you know, if Sally would have just went over there and talked to somebody, then, you know, they'd be saved too. God, you know, God's not like a what if type thing. God knows, you know, he knew. Now, on the unconditional side, the way that they would see it is they would say, well, no, that doesn't, uh, this doesn't hold water, um, especially in the New Testament because, and using the exact same verses, um, of Romans uh, 8, um, verse, you know, verses 28 through 30. I'll read them again. But this is what I want you to pay attention to when I read them, when, I, when, we, when it talks about foreknowing, okay? Some people have said that it can be translated for loved, okay? That it's because of God's love, God's love, that people are predestined, that people are elect to be saved. That it's not that God foreknew something, but he foreknew someone, he foreloved, and knowing is a euphemism for sex in the Bible. That you know, a husband knows his wife; he took her in, and he knew her. Um, so it's a, it's a love aspect for it. So God, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It's it's all about love. So listen to it as in God foreknows someone rather than something, and see if that argument holds water when you read these verses. Starting with verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So, it's not that God foreknew something. It's not that because those whom he foreknew what they were going to do. 
or those who you know, he was going to because of the, their behavior, because of their action, because of what they'd done, but because he knew them, not what was going to take place. And it's very personalized here. It's very individual. And it's very, it, it is, again, it's within Christ. But the election is on those people. It's not based on anything that they've done. Um, when you go on within scripture, uh, you know, it, it goes on to say, you know, who will bring verse 33, chapter eight in Romans, uh, who will bring any charge against God's elect? Is it God who justifies? Who is the one who will condemn? Christ is the one who died. And more than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who is also interceding for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, the sword? As it is written, for your sake we encounter death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we have complete victory through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things that are to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ our Lord. So not only is this all about love, but it's all about the, the person of love. It's all about the act of what is, is going on personally. It is not about a, a choice. It's not that God foreknows something because you can't really even translate foreknown to make it be about something. It's foreknown it's about someone. It's for loved. God loved beforehand. And it, there's you know, more scripture verses that go on to talk about this. I'm watching my trying to watch my time here at the same time I'm, I'm doing this. But um, it's uh, in um, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology in talking about this person and not facts. And it's not that God for foreknowledge of our faith, because as we learned, um, the faith that we exercise is faith that he has given to us. Okay. Um, so we talk about, uh, let's, let me try and find I'm, I'm skimming here as I'm, I'm talking. All right. Eight, we looked at Romans eight twenty nine, Um, and he, uh, when it talks about the facts that he foreknew, not that the person would believe, but that um, like he, he loved them beforehand. In um, Galatians uh, chapter 4, verse 9, uh, it says um, that, or well, let me go back here, Corinthians um, 8, 3, uh, but if one loves God, one is known by him. Similarly, he says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, Galatians 4, 9. When people know God in Scripture or when God knows them, it is a personal knowledge that involves a saving relationship. Therefore, in Romans 8.29, those who he foreknew is best understood to mean those whom he long ago thought of in a saving relationship to himself. The text actually says nothing about God foreknowing or foreseeing that certain people would believe, nor is that idea mentioned in any other text of Scripture. That's where the big sticking point is when it comes to this understanding of 
God foreknows who will have faith in Christ because the faith is not what saves you. Even though we say that we are justified by faith, again, it's the faithfulness of Christ. It is the fetus qua creditor, the faith by which it is believed, rather than the fetus qua creditor, the faith which we have. And that is what this conditional election view is saying, that based on our faith that we exercise, that that's what saves us. And remember, that which saves you is that which sustains you. So if you do hold to this view, necessarily, you would have to say, unless you keep the faith, unless you hold to that faith and you continue to believe, then you will not be saved. If you got a certain feeling whenever you were first saved because of what you did, and yet you don't have the feeling, you don't feel saved, well, then maybe I'm not a Christian anymore. I fall away. That's conditional election. That's where you are saving yourself. You are meriting God's favor based on what you do. It is you saving you. It is not God saving you. Where the unconditional election necessarily has it, there's nothing you can do. And we saw that from Genesis, that God's going to do any, everything. There is nothing that we can do. We can't uh, spontaneously produce a child. Only God can do the virgin birth. Only God can have the seed of the woman uh, crush the head of the serpent. We see that in original sin from Adam and Eve that's been passed down to us, that we can't do anything. We have no free will. We have no libertarian free will. We have no power for contrary thought to go against our desire. We always go with our greatest desire. God has to come in and God has to do something, but it's not by God doing something. It's not by God changing our heart. It's not by God pouring something into us, a sanitive view that we are saved. We are saved by God declaring us to be saved. And he does that because he loves us. And before time began in what's called the, um, the eternal decrees of God. Um, I'm just going to read real quickly. I've got a couple minutes. See, I put myself on a time so that I actually have to um, you know, stick with this. But there are certain things called the holy decrees of God. So these eternal decrees or divine decrees that they're, that they're called. Um, you have, and I'm going to try to go through these real, real fast. Um, Maybe I should save it to the next podcast. I only got a couple minutes here, but you have the what's called the lapsarianisms. You have the superlapsarianism, the sublapsarianism, and the um, uh, sublapsarian, yeah, sublapsarian, superlapsarianism, and infralapsarianism. Um, the sublapsarianism is a double predestination that God not only. Um, chose some to go to heaven, but he also chose some to go to hell. And it goes like this. There's five or six points in each one of these. And it's like, if we could sit back at the council of God before everything was created, and he said, I'm going to create mankind. They're going to fall. I know this. We all know this stuff's going to happen. Here's the way we're going to set things to go about. So first, we're going to decree to elect some and uh, to be saved and to reprobate all others. And then we're going to decree that we create man and both elect and non-elect. So we're going to create some for go to heaven, some to go to hell. Then we're going to decree to permit the fall. We're going to allow the fall to take place. Then we're going to dec decree to provide salvation for the elect. 
and then we are going to decree to save all of those who believe. That's supralapsarianism, okay? Sublapsarianism is single predestination. What that is is that um, instead of creating people to go to hell, he has allowed people to choose along that path that they chose to go to hell. So number one, you decree to create all man. Number two, decree to permit the fall. Three, decree to elect some and to save and reprobate all others. And four, uh, to provide salvation for the elect. And five, to decree that all are saved, um, the decree to save all those who believe. Okay. So you're not, in this one, you're not saying that we're creating people to go to hell. It's that everyone is going to hell, but we are decreeing to save some that we, that we have chosen. Again, asked, why don't you choose everyone? And that's where you have the infralapsarianism here. It's the decree to create all man, the decree to permit the fall, the decree to provide salvation for men, the decree to elect those who will believe and to condemn, to condemn all those who don't believe, then the decree to give grace to all people so that they can believe, that provenient grace, and then there's the decree to save all those who believe. And I would say that that view, this last view here that I'm talking about, this is the majority of the church. This is the majority of what we see in the Old Testament that people would believe. Now, again, these are hypotheticals, okay? These are theories. These aren't anything that you find in Scripture. Again, they're just theories. And I hear the music playing, which means i got to wrap this up here. So... Um, I hope that that has been insightful. I hope that this is, uh, we've understood this and what is meant by this. And now I think that we can move into the next part of understanding salvation. Again, like me on Facebook, The Theology Pit. Uh, write to me, Samson at SamsonStick.com or, um, you know, uh, just go to SamsonStick.com. You can donate if you like. Now it's time to close down the pit. 